0: Anytime you're communicating in any form with an end goal in mind, a purpose in mind, you want to move something forward and get it to some level of a conclusion, you are selling.
1: Welcome Closers, today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you, this is season three on Profit. I'm your host Jordan Wayla and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage a hundred units or a thousand, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Steli Efti, the CEO of Close.io, the CRM of choice for startups and SMBs. Steli has 20-plus years of experience in sales and entrepreneurship and has trained thousands of founders, sales directors, sales reps, develop sustainable and predictable revenue through sales. He's also a mentor and advisor to many early-stage entrepreneurs, as well as a fellow podcaster with his own show, which you can find at thestartupchat.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about how to Think about growth and how to approach it within your own business. Welcome to the show, Steli. Thank you so much for having me. So, I want to get some initial context. Close.io. Can you just give us a brief overview? Um, what is that? How did it come to be?
0: Yes. So, Close.io is an inside sales CRM uh, that's focused on SMBs with many tech companies, but we have people in real estate, property management all kinds of industries around the world uh, that are using our inside sales CRM. So, if you sell primarily through the phone, through email, through kind of inside sales communication with your prospects and customers, we've built the best CRM in the world with out-of-the-box kind of two-way calling, two-way email sync, and a lot of other productivity tools for people. The reason it came to existence, there was nothing that made us want to go into the CRM space. It's a very competitive space. But what happened was that we were running an outsourced sales team on demand for, you know, venture-backed startup companies. So, if you had raised over $10 and you were building out a sales team as a tech company in Silicon Valley, you could come to us, pay us a ton of money, and then we would run all kinds of tests in terms of figuring out a predictable and scalable sales model for you and then hire salespeople for you and scale your sales organization for you. And we did that with over 200 venture-based startups within 18 months. And from day one, we thought that we needed to build internal software to allow our salespeople to outcompete their competitors, to be happy at work, and also to scale our sales organization. And in the beginning, that was all there was to it. We never intended to productize the software. But eventually, the software became so good that we decided to launch it as a tiny little product and see what would happen. And it ended up outgrowing the services business within six months, although there was a tiny team attached to it. And that was the, the signal that made us go, maybe we should focus on the software product. Maybe there's a really big opportunity here. And that's what we've been doing since uh, 2013. We are now many millions in terms of revenue, highly profitable. And as I said, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, customers all around the world.
1: I love that. So, great story. Dog fooding is kind of the classic breeding ground for where a lot of great SaaS companies have come out of dog fooding, meaning building something for a use case that that you're dealing with immediately yourself. I do want to talk a little bit about sales. In general, at the 10,000-foot level, you're known for talking a lot about sales. you have a lot of traction with that. People are very eager to hear you talk on the subject of sales. But for, for SMBs that take great pride in operations, great pride in their craft, in, in delivering their service or good, how, do you, how would you advise them to think about the value that sales as a piece of operations can create relative to the value of the good or service that they happen to be in business to deliver? Yeah, that's a
0: good question and a big one. I really think, you know, at at the core of it, the way I think about sales is that sales is nothing more, nothing less than result-driven communication. Anytime you're communicating in any form with an end goal in mind, a purpose in mind, you want to move something forward and get it to some level of a conclusion, you are selling. And so, you know, sales really applies to many areas in life. Uh, It can be around your prospects and getting them to purchase and become customers. But you're also selling when you're trying to get somebody to join your company and work for you, somebody that's in high demand or very talented. Sales is anytime you try to convince anybody of anything, like talking to journalists, trying to get them to write a story about your company, right? Anything that is result-driven communication at its core is selling. So sales is incredibly valuable skills because it makes the world go round. It makes things move forward to their logical conclusion. And I would go on to say that It doesn't matter if you value sales or not, and it doesn't matter if you have mastered sales or not, organizationally, internally, you are selling, if you like it or not, if you call it that or not. And the better you are selling and the more you cultivate sales as a skill set within your company, the better and the more the results that you're able to accomplish with the group of people that you have. So if you like it or not, you're doing it. So if you're doing it anyways, might as well learn how to do it really well.
1: I love that, the conscious acknowledgement of what's already happening. So extending out that thought in that conversation, when you think about the difference between entrepreneurs that are genuinely committed to growth, specifically within the context of sales and marketing, versus those that maybe are just being kind of seduced by the notion of growing, what are the defining characteristics of folks that are really making the genuine commitment to grow as opposed to folks that are just playing house or maybe paying lip service to the idea?
0: I would say that it's two things. If you are looking for shortcuts and easy solutions versus if you are committed to a long-term goal and persistent action, that's really what separates the people that accomplish the goal for growth, the desire for growth versus those that only flirt with it, right, but never really get to it. Um, I always say that most of the advice that I give is very basic, but it's timeless, right? It was true 50 years ago, probably will be true 50 years from now. And that's the type of thing I'm interested in. I'm not interested in that much, although I live in the technology world and what's constantly changing. I'm interested in what will never change, right? Because those that can be a fundamental guideline to everything I do. And so if you came to me and you asked me how to lose weight, I would tell you to eat broccoli and work out, right? I just the basic things. And I truly believe that most people know what it takes for them to get to growth, but they're constantly running around looking for for another solution. They're like, I still haven't found growth. I'm looking for something new. I'm looking for something interesting. And what's really going on in my mind, in my observation is not that they don't know what it takes for them to grow. It is that they're looking for a more convenient answer to growth. It's not that they don't know what to do. It's that the thing they know how to do or that they need to do, they really don't wanna do, right? They really don't want to do. So they're out there looking for a simpler, more convenient answer. And to me, that separates those who never accomplish what they want, right? Think about somebody that's trying to lose weight, is always looking for a hack, a new fad. What's the newest, coolest pill I can take? What's the easiest thing I book I can read? That There's no easy answer to this. There's basic answers, and those are going to be true. And if you commit yourself to it, you can get there. It's not that, that difficult. And the same thing is true for growth. There's something you know in your business you can do and need to do to grow that you don't want to do, you want to avoid, it's uncomfortable. That's the thing you need to do. And if you're ready to go beyond your discomfort, if you're ready to change and do the things that you're a little afraid of or that you're not used to, then you're probably sooner or later, you're going to find growth.
1: Hmm. Well, I've heard it said, what you resist tends to persist. If you're avoiding those things, you know you must do. So let's talk about operationalizing sales. For a lot of small businesses, again, they've operationalized service delivery. But when it comes to sales or marketing, they're looking for lead gen solutions, throw some money at it, make it go away. For an entrepreneur that has really mastered their craft, they're running a small business, and sales is fundamentally on them. How do they go about graduating out of that role and operationalizing it with as much equivalence as they give to all the other departments that make up 90% of the, the the personnel budget within the organization.
0: So first of all, I think philosophically, you have to commit yourself to the desire to make that happen, right? Here's something I hear all the time from entrepreneurs. They go, I really need to grow my business out of the position it's in right now, which is so dependent on me and my relationships, my network, and the the work I do to close deals and get new customers. But I just don't have the time. And they say that today. And then a year passes and I ask them and they still have the same story. And three years pass and they still have the same story. And again, this is why the business isn't growing, right? Because here's what you need to do. You need to commit yourself and say, there's never going to be a good time. I'm always going to be overwhelmed. I'm always going to have too much on my plate. And what I need to realize is that I need to take a few steps back to be able to go a lot more steps forward with my business. So, you know, I'd rather take, you know, a little bit of a hit in terms of revenue right now and taking a few less customers on board right now to set up a foundation where my business can grow in the future much further beyond the point that it's ever reached. What does this mean practically? Well, first, you have sold as the founder and it's been working. Awesome. Congrats, right? You have some customers, you have somebody to deliver a service to. That's awesome, right? A plus. Now, the next step you have to take is you have to ask yourself, are the activities that I had to take, are those activities repeatable, right? To get to the sale. Meaning, can I do the same thing and get the same result? Or is it like I'm doing something different and I'm getting a variety of results, right? Sometimes I go to networking events. Sometimes I call my old friends. Sometimes I just go to a conference. Sometimes people come to me. Then I've, you know, I run an ad at a local newspaper. Like I've done all these. I, every month I do something different and something happens. And, and there's no repeatability and there's no predictability in my prospecting. If that's the case, the next step is to... Figure out a way to make your sales activity repeatable and predictable. How can I start now doing something that I could repeat and get the same results, right? Where I can get a level of certainty. If I do X, Y, and Z, this is going to be the sales that is going to come back. That's step number one towards scale and growth. Once you get to that step number one, now the next question that you have to ask yourself is, hmm, if I could hire thousands of people and told them to do the exact same thing I'm doing, would they also get the same result? And so I'll give you a good example. If I have 100 uncles and you know every month I ping one of them and ask them if they want to buy and they say, yes, that's pretty repeatable and predictable, but it's not scalable. The moment I reach 100 people that I ping, now I've run out of that source of leads. I've run out of the source of that activity. So now I can't, I can't hire people and tell all of them to do the same thing because the scalability of that thing really doesn't grow uh, with it. If you find something that is repeatable, predictable, and that in theory could be scalable, there's so much to go after that many people could do the same thing and go after for a long period of time. Then what you have to do is hire some people. I would advise you to hire when it comes to sales, always hire in doubles or triplets right? Get multiple people at once. So you get a difference in, they all get the same training, the same information. They start at the same time. I guarantee you, one of the three will have better results than the others. it's going to give you data on what type of person does better in sales, in your job, in your business than others do. If all three are killing it and are profitably selling Hooray, keep all of them, right? And just hire another three people because sales is profitable. But more likely than not, nine out of 10 times, one out of three people is going to do a lot better than the other two. And it's very hard to know that if you're not experienced in hiring salespeople beforehand. So now what you do is you bring in three people and you teach them to do the exact same thing you did. And you observe, do they generate the same results, right? And if they don't, what happens. Why are they struggling to generate the same results? And what do you need to improve or change or help them out with to get there? The moment you get them to generate results, maybe not, maybe they don't have to generate as good of a result as you do, but good enough to make it sustainable. Now you got something, right? Now you have something that has promised and could grow You can do this for a little bit yourself and be like a sales manager, but you could also, once you have three, four people that are kind of generating sales and revenue and things are going kind of well, not perfect, but well, now could be a really good time for you to actually hire a sales manager and show them, hey, here's what we've done as a sales process. Here's what I've built as a sales team. It's a very rough version one. You have experience in managing teams and scaling and growing them. Come in here, take what I've built and grow it. And that's usually the right time to transition. Most founders, they do it the other way around. They are saying, well, what I'm doing is not scaling, so I'm just going to go out there and hire a sales manager. Tell them, go and hire five people and then figure out a sales process that scales. And best of luck. And and that will always fail. Uh, So don't do that. Do it yourself. Do it in a predictable way, in a repeatable way. Ask yourself, does it scale? And if that's true, go hire three people, teach them what you've done, see if they can generate results. And if you get there, hire a manager to take over, grow, build, improve upon what you have started.
1: That's great. So you really outlined some potential landmines in the process. The first one being that there is no process. You're just throwing a body and saying, hey, figure it out. So that's a pretty obvious red flag. I think people can intuit that. When making that hire, though, for an SMB that's hiring the first salesperson in that role, are they even hiring a salesperson? Let's assume that they have meaningful inbound lead flow. Do they really need a salesperson? Do they need an, an order taker? What's your commentary there?
0: Yeah, I mean it depends on the complexity of the sale, right? If the sale is completely transactional, yet somebody calls, I pick up the phone, they say I want to order a hundred, you know, of what you have to offer, and all I have to do is type in their information and send it to them. Obviously, that is something that's much easier to hire for, right? Because it doesn't take that much qualification. Now you could ask yourself, do we want to stand out? What kind of brand and 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 reputation do we want want to build? So could we hire people that really sound amazing, that ask better questions, that make people feel really? valued on the phone but it's not that difficult of a skill but if you really need salespeople, salespeople means there's going to be some friction in the buying process even if the leads are inbound they might have some questions they might have some objections they might have some insecurities or fears before buying your product you, you might be in competition with other solutions and offerings out there so you're going to need somebody that's a better communicator um, if that's the case I still would tell you that in most cases, you really don't need somebody with a lot of sales experience. Like In the early days, I would value a culture fit. I would value the motivation, the hunger that somebody has, and the core DNA. Is this person somebody that is a good communicator? Is this somebody that is trustworthy? Is this somebody that's ambitious and competitive? If they have these things and they're not that afraid of rejection, they're not that afraid of you know, going the extra mile or going where it's uncomfortable... I'd rather hire somebody like that like that than hire somebody with many years of experience in sales. I would actually say, if somebody has, I mean, not one or two years of experience, if somebody has many years of experience in sales, 5, 10, 15 years, I would, that would be a disqualifying criteria for hiring. I would run for the hills if somebody comes to me and says, I have 30 years of experience in sales and I want to work for you. And here's why, right? There is, you know, there's oversimplify two types of people in sales. Those that know how to sell and those people are making a lot of money and they're in high demand and they're not looking for jobs. They're being hired. They're never applying for jobs. And then those that have learned to sell to people who know nothing about sales that they're good at selling, right? And these are the people that have 20 years of experience but have nothing better to do than apply for your job, right? Right. Um, and take an entry-level job in a company that doesn't have a proven sales team, that cannot pay a lot of money, but they're telling you, oh, I have so many contacts in this industry. I'm so important. I've closed million-dollar deals. If they're telling you things that sound too good to be true, they are too good to be true, right? I would run for the hills. I would be scared. If you can't answer the question, why is this person right now, right here, wanting to work for me? There is not a good answer if you have to look for an answer, right? Right. There can always be exceptions. If this, that's your, your father, your brother, or somebody that you have a close relationship with, you know, that's fair. But if they came in uh, you know, because they, they want to work for you, because they don't have a job right now, they're telling you they're really experienced and successful in sales, the truth is they aren't, right? So, And they're going to destroy a lot of value, and they're going to waste a lot of your time. They're going to put a lot of bad ideas in your. The problem is you're not going to instantly notice that, and a lot of founders and entrepreneurs when they're not experienced in sales, they're gonna give these people way too much time. They're gonna feel that something is wrong, but they're gonna tell, tell and rationalize themselves. Well, I don't know anything about sales. This person has 20 years of experience. Maybe I just have to wait and see. Maybe I just don't understand how selling works. No, it's not true. You're gonna sense and feel and know when somebody knows what they're doing. And if your intuition is telling you this person is weird, this what they're telling me does not make sense, you're right. You don't need a lot of sales experience to To be probably accurate with that. So, um, I would look for core attributes and talent before experience in the early days, right? Once you get to scale, you're gonna have to hire more and more experienced people, improved and vetted people. But at that point, you can get these vetted people and experienced people because you can pay them enough money, your organizational structure is attractive, you have a proven track record of growth and opportunity for them. But in the very early days, you're gonna have a bigger chance hiring young potential than hiring experienced veterans
1: that are really good at what I love that. I really like what you highlighted in the scenario where you know something is wrong, but you're not sure what, and that ambiguity is a byproduct of a lack of process, oversight, a lack of an activity based framework. When we talk about forms of self-sabotage for the entrepreneur, comp is one of those examples, right? The idea that I want a really successful, effective salesperson, but I want to pay them as little as possible, put them on hundred percent comp, etc. Walk me through how a successful, reasonable entrepreneur thinks about comping salespeople in an early model. A number of things. Number one, philosophically, long term, you
0: want your salespeople to be rich people, right? You want them to be making tons of money because if you structure the deal right, the more money they make, you the more money your company makes. There's no reason to cap the amount of money they can make because you're capping the amount of money they can make you as well. Like there's no, there's zero alignment in that, right? So, ideally, in in some of the best companies, the salespeople are the people that are being paid the most. There's companies where the top salespeople are being paid more than CEO or the founders, right? And rightfully so, good on them, right? Good on them because they are bringing all this business and money and revenue to the company. Now, having said that, in the early days, you are most likely not going to be able to be paying millions of dollars to people because it takes a lot of time for them to to close these deals and you're not going to be able to afford to finance that. Um, So, the way I would think about compensation in the early days is you're most likely not going to be able to compete just purely based on compensation because you're not going to be able to pay the most amount of money to the most talented salespeople out there. Not in the early days when you're still figuring out a sales model and a sales organizational structure. So a lot of the reason that people should want to come and work for you are not necessarily monetary, right? There should be that the pitch should be that they're going to get to work with you, the founder directly. They're going to be able to design and build the sales process, not just do the sales job, be at the ground floor of building the depart- the sales department. They're going to be able to put themselves in a position to grow in a leadership role in a way that they wouldn't be able in- to do in a much larger organization. And so, these exposures to the entrepreneurial point of view, to working directly with the owner of the business, to designing the job and the role for all the future people to come and to be hired versus just doing the job, these things are going to be really attractive to a certain type of salesperson. More likely than not, a salesperson that's a bit more entrepreneurial than the average sales rep. And that's the type of sales rep you want because in the early days, you're still going to have to You know, explore and experiment. You're going to have some trial and error. You don't have a perfect, you know, sales model mapped out that you just hand over to them and they just have to execute. So, highlight the benefits and the things you have to offer that are not just compensation. And then tell them, and this should be the truth, that when it comes to compensation, you want them to get filthy rich. You want the company to be incredibly uh, successful and, and high growth. And you will work, you will design a compensation structure together with them. They're going to have input in the compensation structure for the sales team. And and, and I mean that. You should develop the comp structure as you're learning more and more about the sales process and the sales model that you have together with the sales team, right? Get their input. doesn't mean that they tell you exactly what to do, right? Well, pay 100% commission on everything, but it means that that they have a say so they will have ownership of it. And then when they start hiring sales reps for you, they're going to be able to sell the compensation structure with conviction because they have ownership. It didn't just come from some owner or entrepreneur. They were part of the discussion. So they feel that, you know, they can sell this and, and, and they can defend this. And You want to start with a compensation structure as simple as possible. It's going to get complicated all on its own. You're not going to have to work that hard to make it complicated. But Start simple, right? Start as simple as possible. Too many founders start way too complicated. 10-page compensation structure in the early days is way too complicated. You're trying to adjust for all edge cases. Yeah, all scenarios when what you should try to do is to you should try to account for the most important things first and then think of your comp structure as a product that living, breathing product that needs versions and needs iteration and needs improvement. So when you come up with a comp structure, it should always have a version attached to it, right? It's comp structure version one, you know, June 19th, 2018. And the idea and understanding is that we're going to be updating this once a month. We're going to be editing things. We're going to be deleting things. We're going to be adjusting things until we get to a point where we really have scale and certainty on how the business model works, how the sales model works. And now this model is not going to be changing every few weeks or every few months. But in the beginning, keep it simple. And so part of keeping it simple is don't make things that are very hard to to change and turn back, right? Don't make compensation structures that are paying people for life on a monthly basis,
1: right? Oh, so yeah, so let's, let's zone in on that because SaaS, subscription model, recurring revenue, that's actually an analog for my industry where they're charging a monthly management fee. And I feel like this is totally a scenario where people get stuck. I've had numerous scenarios where I've got a client with a way overcompensated. They feel like it's a way overcompensated salesperson. Give me the 411 on trailing revenues, et cetera, with recurring revenue.
0: Yeah, well, there's not a simple model that applies to every every business, even in SaaS, because it, it depends so heavily on your customer lifetime value and your average uh, cost to acquire a customer. Right? These these two things will give you your profit margin, and that profit margin will dictate how much of that you can pay a salesperson, right? Uh, how much of that a salesperson really owns. But in general, I would tell people: here's what not to do. You don't pay salespeople on a monthly basis, right? Depending on a closed deal. So if I close a deal and the customer is paying me a thousand bucks a month, the salesperson should not be getting a commission every time payment is being made on a monthly recurring basis. Never ever should that be the case. And there's a number of reasons for this. Number one is you're probably gonna get compensation wrong. And if you get it wrong on a one-time payment, that sucks. But if you get it wrong on an indefinite monthly payment, that can really that can really cost you. Your business. Number two, you want salespeople that are motivated, right? Sales is a very kind of activity based thing. Think of it as a sport, right? No matter how good of an athlete you are, imagine if you were like a top athlete in a top team. If you, every time you you throw, you know, let's say in basketball, you, you make a score, you score, if that point would hold on to every other game. So next game you start, you're starting with 20 points. And the next game you start, you're starting with 40 points. Eventually, you're going to, if you're a really good player, you're going to get on the on the field and have no reason to be motivated and hustle and work really hard because you're already thousands of points up, right? It's the same thing is true for salespeople. You want to Give them a great payment, a motivating payment, something to go after, to be excited about. But once they receive that, they should be hungry to put in the work next quarter or next month again. They shouldn't be like, well, I've been at this company for six months. Even if I don't do anything, I'm still going to make pretty good money for the next 12 months. That's not what you want them to be thinking, right? So I would, in general, tell advice people, make, in the beginning, call it a bonus, not even a commission. Make it a quarterly thing so they can work really hard for three quarters and then get a really good payment. Pay them in a way that seems painful to you, right? When you as an entrepreneur feel like this is, a, this is a bit too much, it's probably right, right? It's probably right. You really want to motivate these people and money motivates salespeople, right? And you can see they're going to be performing way better than you ever expected if you give them a real good reason for it, right? If, you are, you know, if you're trying to hold back if you're nickel and diming them, they're going to do the same thing. And then their performance is going to be underwhelming and you're really shooting yourself in the foot. So pay them once a quarter, once they hit a certain target, you could do this if you wanted to be really thoughtful on an individual as well as on a team basis. So you tell them, if you as an individual rep, if you hit a certain goal, you can have like three levels, right? The lowest level, what you expect from them, and really a point where it's like, if you, sh- if you hit this level you're going to get some extra money, right? So they have like a low-level, mid-level, high-level target to go after and that they're going to be compensated with in form of a really nice bonus payment. And then you could add something that's a team-based thing. Hey, if the entire sales team reaches a certain revenue goal, everybody's going to get a little a little tiny cherry on top, right? That shouldn't be a massive payment because people are going to be unhappy if they were the main reason the goal was was, was accomplished and everybody gets the same. That's just a tiny little... Bit. Cherry on top, but it, it explains and and sells the entire team on the idea that this is a team sport. At the end of the day, if we as a sales team hit our goals. The company is hitting their goals. Means this company is going to be around. It's going to be growing. More opportunities are going to be there for us. So we can't just be only selfish. If every other salesperson is failing while I'm succeeding, this job, this company is not going to be around for long, right? So you want to incentivize that. Start with that. And then once a quarter, see how well this is working, adjust, improve, add, subtract.
1: Love it. Yeah, totally makes sense to me. I think a lot of people will intuit that when they hear it. I do want to talk about the role of profit. Structurally, there are certain situations where a company isn't ready to grow. Let's say that they're not funded and they haven't reached product market fit and there just isn't enough money to throw at it. How do you think about the role of profit as a governor or an enabler for growth? You said, right, it all depends. Listen, if you cannot
0: finance the business through your customers and your profits – then it's going to have to be financed somewhere else, right? So either you finance your growth through your own profits, which means that your customers are paying you so much more money than it costs you to service them that you can take the excess of that money. And now it's a question of how aggressive you want to grow. Do you want to take all the profits and reinvest in the business and growth? Do you want to take half of it? Do you want to take a small amount of it? The amount that you're willing to reinvest might might really adjust the growth curve, right? Uh, Of how fast your business is going to scale and grow. If you don't have that luxury, for whatever reason you're telling me, no matter how well we sell, no matter how good our customers are, we're not going to be making profit in the early days. It might take us many years to start being able to turn a profit. Then you're going to have to finance this from another source, right? And that might be a bank, that might be an angel investor, that might be a venture capitalist. It's going to be some kind of an investor, right? In one way or another, it might be yourself, like your own savings, but then you're the investor, right? Right. But the money is going to have to come somewhere. And and so when you take outside sources for money to invest in growth, again, the question is then how, like the question that you have to ask yourself early is then how good are we in uh, securing later financing rounds? How good are we in fundraising, right? How many sources of capital do we have? How good are we in tapping into these sources of capital? And that will dictate how aggressive you can be in postponing profits. Or in spending people's money, right? If you raise a friends and family round and you don't have that, your family and friends are not that wealthy, you don't have that many friends and that much family, right? And you've never raised outside money, you don't have a track record in it, you are fairly inexperienced in scaling a business, I would be very, very conservative with the money that I raise, right? I would ask myself, how can we turn, how can we put this money in the business in a way where maybe we don't turn a profit immediately, but we get to break even, right? And once we get to break even, we could then reevaluate. Can we go outside and find financing and tell our investors, hey, we could grow the business on break even profitably, slowly, or if, we, if you give us the money, we can regressively grow faster, which makes the business a lot more valuable, and which will benefit you and us, Right. That's a pitch that's, that, that is compelling to investors. If you were like a, a fundraising ninja, right, a black belt, and you've done this many times and you raised millions of dollars before and you have many sources of, of, of capital and you really you have a skill set, either yourself or somebody else on your team, then you can be a lot more aggressive, right? You could like, uh, put a line in place and say, hey, profits are not going to be important for the five, first five years. All we're going to care about is growth. Right, top level growth. So, and we're convinced if we can hit a certain growth curve, we can keep getting capital to keep fueling that growth. Um, so, that would be to me what determines how aggressive you should be in terms of how you finance growth. But at the end of the day, it's very simple. The, the problem that most founders have, or many founders have, is that they have no experience in funding and financing, they've never done it before. They might be able to scrape a little bit of capital from their network. And then they have this hope and dream that that capital will get them that much growth and then outside investors and institutionalized investors will be compelled to want to invest more money. And that could happen. It's just a much, much riskier proposition. It's much more of a lottery ticket than really a business plan that has high chances of success. What I've outlined are things that will work if you execute well. What I've just outlined at the very end is much more based on hope and luck. Then on real execution, you could be executing really well and still fail because you don't have good access to sources of funding and you've never cared enough to turn a profit early enough, so now you're in trouble.
1: There are certain situations where somebody will approach me and will look at their business dynamics and all I can tell them is that if you scale this, you will be scaling something to your own detriment. What are the infrastructure conditions in terms of finances, etc., that maybe a person might look at and say you know what, this, this isn't, even though I think I could do it through sheer force of will, through fundraising, through sales marketing, the underlying mechanics are not in place. Can you walk me through how you think about that?
0: I'm going to make this very simple, yes. So this is going to be the, 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 you know, a very simple mental model I think that most people can follow. Don't worry or don't care as much about acquisition of customers. Look very closely at your retention and expansion. If you acquire customers, I don't care at what rate, at an amazing rate, right you're acquiring all the hundreds of thousands of new customers are signing up every day for your service. Oh my God, you're exploding. That is a nice start that's actually pretty irrelevant to the question, Will this scale, or will you be in trouble in, in a few months or in a few years? The answer, are we building a business? That has longevity, or are we just fooling ourselves? Is not in the acquisition numbers; it's in the retention and expansion numbers. Look at not only how many customers are we acquiring, but how many of those are we retaining? Right? Are these customers that we are acquiring are they actively using our service or product every day, multiple times, or as many times as we could imagine for our industry? And are they using it more and more over time? And are they paying us more and more money over time? And are they getting more value, more success through our service or product over time? If your retention numbers are strong and if your customers are expanding, meaning they're spending more and more money with you right over time, not the same and not less and less money over time. If you have strong retention and expansion numbers, more likely than not, you're building something that is found fundamentally sound, right? That that is sound. That's going to stick around. And then the question is just: How long is your customer lifetime value? How long do they stick around? And how much money does a customer make you? And how much does it take you cost you to acquire them, right? And if you're very good retention, you know you can spend an insane amount. You could be spending ten thousand dollars to acquire a customer that only pays you two hundred dollars a month. If that customer sticks around for decades, right? Yeah, And if they spend more and more money every year, they start at 200, next year they're at 400, or next year they're at 800, then they're 1200, you're gonna be able to finance this eventually, right? Because an investor will look at this and realize this is, you know, might take 10K, but we're making 100K. It just takes some time to make a return on that investment. And more important than that, these customers are probably so incredibly happy and successful, we're gonna be able to build a really powerful brand, we're gonna be able to build Other products and other services to sell to these customers, right? We're really building something that has longevity, right? If you, I have people all the time. They come up to me and they're stelly. We launched a new mobile app. We have ten thousand downloads every day, forty thousand downloads every day. We're now we really need to raise more money to really do more ads and really scale this up. And I go, I always ask them, oh, how many total users do you have? Well, we have one hundred twenty thousand downloads in the last two weeks. That's exciting. How many of those are active users yesterday? How many active Users, did you have yesterday? And it's always a soul crashing answer. They are always squirt. They always are in pain because they have to give me that number. And it's always like, well, you know, yesterday it was like, uh, you know, 2,200 people. And I'm like, yeah, well, that sounds, 2,200 people sounds very different than 120,000, right? Let's talk about these 2,200. What Love did it. they do? Are they coming back? That's the, that's the core thing you should look at.
1: Love it. So churn and revenue expansion, we don't have more time to get into it, but guys, it is so underrated. That's not just for Valley SaaS companies. That's for SMBs. If you're in the recurring revenue game, you must retain your customers. And expansion revenue don't think fee maxing. Don't think nickel and diming people. Think actually biz dev, adding more value, expanding the programs. There are opportunities there. I do want to move on to the rapid fire section of the interview. And I just want to quickly go through these and just get some off the cup answers for you. I do this with every guest and Stelly. the first question is this, what limiting beliefs have held you back in the past that you had to work through and to overcome to get where you're at today? The
0: biggest one was uh, as an entrepreneur that I think I had like a 80s baby mental model of success, which meant, you know, I'd watched too much Rocky movies. So I thought I would have to suffer to success, right? I would have to go through failure and I would have to be punched in the face again and again and again and again, metaphorically speaking, until I finally went through so much suffering that I deserved success. That's a very bad, that's a very bad mental model to follow, If you want to be not just successful, but also kind of happy and sane as a human being. The first company I started in Silicon Valley, when I moved from Europe to the Valley, I sold everything I had. I bought a one-way ticket to San Francisco 13 years ago. And the first company I did, I suffered through it. I did all the wrong things. And it took five years out of my life to fail at something that I could have failed very quickly within a year and just let go and start over again. And it took... It took like almost getting to depression and being completely broke financially, emotionally, spiritually for me to admit that this didn't work. And I can't, if I want to be a successful entrepreneur, I can't just suffer my way through success. I can't just be running against the wall all day long with my head. Eventually, my head will break. Right? So I have to look for the doors with my eyes versus just going through the, the
1: wall with my head. Um, that was a really big one for me to break through. Love that. So it's it's self-fulfilling, right? If you assume you have to suffer, you will suffer. So it was an example of a non-worthwhile sacrifice. On terms of worthwhile sacrifices, what was the strategic sacrifice that you've made that, that was necessary and really worthwhile to get where you're at?
0: Anytime I had to l- let go of somebody, it was something I didn't want to do because most people, almost everybody I've ever hired uh, have turned out to be great people, not always The right asset at the right time, not always skill-wise the right person for the right job, but always great people. And so the best sacrifice was learning over time that postponing the decision when ways had to part was really bad for them and really bad for me really bad for the business just all around a terrible thing to do and learning you know to act really quickly whenever i had the whenever i had the sense or I had the data that told me that this person isn't working out for the business taking a step immediately and learning to understand that it's not about me that conversation is not about making me feel good or just, justified it's all about empowering them to feel good it's all about empowering them to succeed moving forward I think that mental shift made a big difference and I can say a lot of our biggest customers today are people that work for me at one day or another and I had to part ways with and we stayed in touch and they're customers of me. Some of them, I'm an investor in their business. I have a very strong relationship with almost everybody that I've worked with in the past and that's because I put them first.
1: Wow. So The sacrifice was the uncomfortability of wading into those conversations in an honest way as opposed to avoiding it. I love it. Last question of the day. I ask this to every single guest. Steli FD, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? I don't think entrepreneurs are born. Some people have natural talents that can help
0: or make things easier when you're an entrepreneur. I think everybody can learn to be an entrepreneur, but I do think that uh, talents do make a difference. Uh, And so I don't think that everybody's equally gifted at being an entrepreneur and can be as successful as every other entrepreneur. I think every one of us can learn to be as successful as as we can in our lives without potential, without luck, without circumstance. But I don't think that it's a black and white answer. There's a lot of gray between the natural talents people are born with, the skills and experiences and things that can be acquired if you if your desire is big enough.
1: A little bit of both, fair enough. Plenty of people fall into that camp, Stelly, For folks that want to stay in touch, find out more about what you're up to. What's the best place for them to go?
0: Yes, yeah, so I've written over ten books on the topic of sales, from hiring salespeople to scaling a sales model. If you want all of them in a in a in a digital format in a beautiful link, just send me an email, stelly@close.io, Just say bundle, please, and I'll I'll send you a link to get all my books for free. Um, You mentioned it earlier, if you enjoy podcasts, uh, you liked uh, our conversation today, you want to go to
1: thestartupchat.com and check out the podcast there. You might enjoy it. All right. That's one of the better answers to that show-ending question I've gotten before. Hey, thanks for coming on the show. Stay in touch. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group where we mastermind with the best in the industry.